We want people to come to know Jesus as their Savior and then live their life for Him and tell others the great news of, of God coming in the flesh and dying for us. We're going to continue our series through the New Testament book of Acts. And we've been calling this series The Action of the Church. And I was thinking about this this week, and I'm just hoping someday in the future, there'll be like years later, uh, someone may ask one of you, hey, what's the book of Acts about? You go, hey, Pastor John said that like 90 times. It's about the action of the church and what the first church was doing. With that being said, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 16 through 40. And I'm calling this sermon, Big God, Small Problems. So we are continuing in the, the book of Acts, and chapter 16 is detailing the second missionary, missionary trip that, that Paul took. Uh, I was thinking, also thinking about this, you know, if you turn to the end of your Bibles, there's always these maps, and so wow, two weeks ago we looked at the first missionary journey of Paul, and it's usually in one color, and well, this is the secondary, second missionary journey, it's in some other color in the backs of your Bibles. That's what we are studying. Well, last Sunday, we saw how these guys, they wanted to take the gospel to Asia. I think maybe they had big plans. They wanted to go as far as Asia. I don't know. Or excuse me, as far as China. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them. The third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, he redirected and realigned these men. And so they headed west instead. Acts chapter 16 is really a trilogy of stories. And last Sunday, we saw the first trilogy. We saw about, we'd learned about this businesswoman. Her name is Lydia. And she's a seller of purple, uh, purple goods. And she came to faith in Christ. And she and her whole household were baptized. And then she put the missionary team up in some pretty plush accommodations. So I'm pretty sure it was pretty nice once Lydia got involved. Well, today we're going to look at the... The second installment. The second installment is the, the, of the trilogy, it's uh, part two. We're going to meet a slave girl. We don't know her name, but she's possessed by a demon. It's a pretty wild story. And then we're going to read part three, and this is of a Philippian jailer in the city of Philippi. But with no further ado, let's just jump into part two. Phili uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 16. And as we are going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and, and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul in us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So here we've met a slave girl, and she has a spirit of divination. She's literally demon-possessed. She's kind of what we would think of as like a modern-day median. She, she taps into the spiritual realm to try to tell people's future. And Luke lets us know that she brought her owners much fortune and gain by what she was doing. So there is somebody that is making a lot of money off of this little girl's infirmity. So there's someone somewhere that is getting rich off a suffering little girl. Do you know that still happens today? That there's little girls and little boys in different parts of the world that they're hurting. And there's people that are making money off the slavery of children. That, that there's still people to, today in this day and age that they're innocent. And there's, there, there's people that prey upon them as people of faith. 
We must be willing to help and reach out to these children that are hurting and suffering. I mean, think about it. In our own backyard, we have children that have different issues going on in their lives, and the only answer is Jesus. And here, we are people of faith, and how dare we if we don't go out to these children, adults too, that are hurting and share the good news of the gospel. And the reason why I'm, I'm focusing on this, because I hope we read these pages of what's going on in this little girl's life when we have compassion for her. Well, Luke tells us that she followed Paul for many days. Okay? And she's saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the way of salvation. You know, she isn't saying this because she wants people to start to follow Paul and Silas. No, she's making fun of Paul and Silas. She's mocking Paul and Silas. And to be associated with a girl that's very clearly demon-possessed, what it would do, it would delegitimize the gospel message that Paul is preaching. But eventually Paul gets fed up with this girl that's fallen around for many days. I mean, think about it. It's not like it's a couple minutes or she's badgering him for an hour or two. No, this is many days until Paul couldn't take any more, and he commanded the Spirit to come out. He said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. And the text says she, that it came out that very hour. I mean, think about it. Right there, right then, wham! The Spirit comes out of this little girl. But I really want to look at what this demon said about Paul and the gang, and more importantly, what this Spirit said about God. Because this demon, it, it called God the Most High God. Now remember, keep this in mind that Paul, Silas, Timothy, they're in an area, this Philippi, that is totally dominated by pagan worship. I mean, there's like no believers in Philippi yet, other than Lydia that just got saved a few moments ago, if you will. It's like everybody is worshiping false gods in this area, yet this little girl calls Yahweh the most high God. This is what I want us to know here today. I want us to know that the demons have a very high view of God. Okay? The most high God. And then she said, and, and these men proclaimed the way of salvation. So here's a question to you. The demons have a high view of God. Do you? I mean, the demons know that God is the only God, that He is high and lifted up. The demons have a high view of God. So my question is, do you? You know... Jesus had a half-brother by the name of James. He had something to say about this. When he wrote his epistle, James chapter 2, verse 19, James says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. As a pastor, as a believer, I ask people all the time, hey, tell me about your beliefs. And people all the time, they say, oh, I believe in God. And I want to say, oh, you believe in God? Whoopity-doo! I don't say that, but I want to say that. I mean, because James says even the demons believe, and they shudder. The demons believe in God, but at least they do something with the belief, the knowledge that they have, they shudder. I think what James is insinuating is saying, you don't even do that. They, I, I, I think if more people in our world, I think if we had the same view of God as the demons do, I think our world would be on a whole lot better place. Because faith in God, it's more than an intellectual belief. It's more than just head knowledge. It's more than just going to church. Okay? Because the demons believe in God, they shudder. You see, real, genuine, saving faith is more than just simple head knowledge. It's a matter of the heart. 
Head knowledge is just knowing facts. It's information. It's cerebral. But heart transformation happens when this head knowledge, it moves into your heart and it changes and transforms your hearts. Because you can know facts about somebody, but you not really know somebody. Knowing God, it's, it's a relationship. It's different than knowing about God. That's just religion. Class, classic textbook religion is just knowing facts and figures, okay? So you can know facts about somebody and not really know them. For example... I know a lot about Michael Jordan, the famous basketball player. I know a lot about, about him. I can tell you where he went to college. I can tell you where he played his professional career with the Chicago Bulls, how he left uh, basketball for baseball, coming back again to, to basketball. I can tell you a lot about him, but the truth is I've never met the man. And more importantly, he's never met me. Because, because if you ever get the chance to meet Michael Jordan, here's the question I want you to ask him. Go to him going, hey, what do you think about Pastor John Burns? I'll tell you exactly what he's going to say. He's going to say, who? Never met the man. He's never met me. You know, Jesus said something kind of similar to this. Found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will come to me. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from you, you workers of lawlessness. That's a harsh word coming from Jesus. Just because you say, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean you're going to heaven when it's all said and done. Something greater must happen. You see, saving faith in Jesus occurs when the truth of God, it moves from your head to your heart. When it moves from just being facts about God to a a genuine love for God. Did you know that the demons know why Jesus came to the earth? The demons know that. You know, often when Jesus would encounter a demon, he would confront the demon and the demons would say something like, what do you do, do with us? Have you come to destroy us? That's what demons would say to Jesus. John said something about this in his first epistle. In John chapter, one, verse three, or chapter 3, verse 8. John says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil is, has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God, that's Jesus, he's the Son of God. The reason Jesus appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And demons are not dumb. Okay? They might be wicked, but they're not dumb. In fact, they're wicked smart. A little Boston accent there. I hope somebody appreciates that. But they know why Jesus came to the earth. And the question we should ask, well, what are the works of the devil? What did Jesus come to destroy? And let me say it like this. And just for the sake of time, I'll sum it up. The works of the devil is to encouragement of of sin, to encourage a false gospel. Because the devil loves it. I mean, loves, loves, loves it when there's a false gospel that's being preached. Because a false gospel, it just seems so godly on the outside. It just seems just so right in our thinking that we do this, and then God does that, and you go all through all this stuff and jump through all these religious hoops, and then God will free you from sin. No, it doesn't. The truth is it only continues people to, it encourages people to sin. You see, all the religion in the world can never free anybody from the grips of sin. 
Read what Paul said about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, in their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see, Satan puts blinders on the eyes of unbelievers so they think that this religion's going to do the trick, but it never will. Only the grace of God will ever free anybody from the clutches of sin. Read what Paul says about this to his letter to the church in Colossae, chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says, he, meaning Jesus, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But then Satan comes in, these unbelievers, and he captures their minds so they can't see the truth, the spiritual truth. But then the gospel comes blasting in, the one and pure gospel, and and, and it frees people from all this. And I'll say this. That's why we, from members of this church, we can never budge an inch. Not one iota can we budge on what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. Because if we're willing to budge, then then how is God going to use us? We have to be true to the gospel. Now, we can change our programs. We can change our music. We can change our order of service. We can change the songs we sing. That stuff doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the gospel. Look what happens next. Pick it up. Acts 16, beginning in verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope for gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in, attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received his orders, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Time out. What if we backed up just a little bit? Consider this. Did Paul free that little girl the moment he saw her? The answer is no. Well, then I have a question. And my question is why? Why did Paul wait a couple days? Why didn't he just see that girl and say, in the name of Jesus, get out? Why didn't he do that the moment he saw this little girl? And I think the reason why is because Paul knew that this city is just chock full of pagan worshipers. And they would have been upset by this little girl being set free. And I think Paul knew that was going to hurt the gospel ministry. So in the time being, he waited. And he waited until he couldn't wait any longer And I think Paul was kind of like Popeye. If you remember the old Popeye cartoons when Bluto's giving him a hard time and eventually he would say that line. If you, you young when I was, a children of the child of the 70s, 80s, eventually Popeye's going to say, I stands all I can stands, I can't stands no more. That's when the can of spinach was coming out and his arms are going to get big and he's going to whip Bluto. Well, that's what happened to Paul. The gospel came out and so did the demon. But then he went to prison for doing so. That brings me to my first point this morning. Here's point number one. God often uses suffering to accomplish his good purpose in our lives. Did you know that God allows suffering in our lives? Because here's something that you need to know. And it's going to help sort all this out. God has a perfect will and God has a passive will. 
And the latter of these two is filtered through the very hands of sovereign God. And you better be grateful that he's a good, good father. And sometimes we can't see the hand of of God as believers. We just have to trust in the heart of God. Because when suffering rolls into our life or maybe it crashes onto our beach, what's our typical response? Our typical response is, help me out of here. I know that's what I say. Or we ask, why? God, why? Why now? Anybody ever ask why? Yeah, we all should have our hands up, right? We all ask why. And so why do we react with the reaction of why? Why do we ask the question why? We ask why because we don't know why. We don't know why the trial showed up on our doorstep. It's really unknown to us. I mean, some of us in this room, some of us right now are being hit with some pretty hard situations. And we want to know the natural question that we ask is why? Because we don't know the answer to why. But maybe this might help. Even though you and I, we don't know the answer for why, God knows why. God knows why the why is happening. God knows why the the why is coming to our life. And God knows what's going to come from the outcome of the why. He knows. You know, if we don't focus on the why, then we focus on the duration of the why, don't we? Hey, God, how long are you going to allow this to happen to me? How long is this going to happen in my life? That's the question we ask. Chuck Swindoll, he once told a story of a young man by the name of Glenn Chambers. And Glenn Chambers felt the call to go to Ecuador to work in this ministry that was called Voice of the Andes. Well, on February 15, 1974, he's, before leaving Miami Airport... Glenn grabbed a piece of paper that he found in the terminal, and he, in a hurry, he scribbled a note on it and grabbed an envelope and addressed it to his mother and, and stuck it in the mail, mailed it off. On his way to Ecuador, a 14,000-foot um, cliff reached out and grabbed the plane that he was on. Glenn Chambers died that day. Well, his mom received the note days after his death. And Glenn's note, it was just a piece of paper from an advertisement that he found on the, somewhere in the airport. And the center across the, the advertisement, just one word. Why? Maybe if you're apt to take notes, write this down. We should focus on what we know and not on what we don't know. Because here's what we all know. As believers, we should know that God is good. That God is faithful, that God is loving, that God is kind, that God is generous. And here's something you need to know. God is always in control. And when I say always, I mean like always. And I know this is so much easier said than done. But leave the wise to the God of the universe. Here's a game changer when it comes to the why question of the Christian life. Okay, read with me in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. The word of God says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let me try to unpack this, this, these two verses that we just read for you here. Okay, This is not a universal promise. These verses do not apply to every, everybody. These verses only apply to believers. Because the Bible says for those who love God and those who called according to His purpose. That's who these, ver- these verses are for. 
And the Bible says that all things work together for good. The Bible doesn't say that all things are good. Not all things are good. Some things are sinful. Some things are wrong. Some things are horrible. But what happens is God in His infinite wisdom and His unwavering love, He takes those things that are terrible and awful and sinful and He changes them into something good in our lives. You see, what God does is He takes failure and He turns into success. God takes tragedy and He turns into triumph. God takes suffering and He turns into joy. You see, God the Father, He uses these horrible situations in our lives to make us more like His Son, Jesus. That's the the reason that we still have trials, to make us more like Jesus. There's a song by Phil Wickham. The title of his song is called Battle Belongs. I want to read some of the lyrics for you. It says, When all I see is the battle, you see my victory. When all I see is the mountain, you see a mountain moved. As I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. There's nothing to fear now that I'm safe with you. So when I fight... I fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet. I sing through the night. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And if you are for me, who can be against me? Yeah. For Jesus, there's nothing impossible for you. When all I see are are the ashes, you see the beauty. Thank you, God. When all I see is a cross, God, you see an empty tomb. Someone once asked R.C. Sproul's, they asked, hey, why do bad things happen to good people? And Sproul's answer was classic. Maybe write this down. He said, well, I haven't met any good people yet, so I don't really know. Here's a better question to ask. Why do bad things happen to bad people who love God? And the answer is so that God can take those things that are awful and horrible, tragic in our life, and use them to make us more like the sun. You see, the reality of the Christian life is that none of us are exempt from suffering. Hey, anybody over the age of 20 never suffered? I see no hands. Okay, that's all of us. We've all experienced suffering. God does not promise a suffer-free Disneyland fairy tale life. God doesn't promise that. In fact, God promises a life that's just chock full of suffering. James said this earlier in his, his letter in James chapter 1, verse 2. He says, count it all Joy, my brothers, when you meet various uh, uh, meet trials of various kind. Notice James didn't say if. He didn't say that. He said when. And the word various, it's a word that means multicolored, okay? James is saying when life hits you with everything and the kitchen sink, count it all joy. You know, the, here's the only truly amazing thing about trials. Here it is. The only truly amazing thing about trials is that we're surprised that they happen. We say, oh, I can't believe this trial had my life. That's what we say. Well, how can you not believe it? We live in a broken, fallen, messed up world. We live in a world that's full of sin. Trials are inevitable. You know, the only thing that is sure in this life, death, taxes, and trials. That's it. I want to give you three facts about life that we, that we all need to embrace concerning problems. And I think if we can embrace these, these three facts, it's, life's going to make a whole lot more sense. Here's fact number one. Problems are inevitable. Okay? Do you think when Paul and Silas, when they woke up that morning, they were like, hey, we're going to get thrown into jail this morning. No, that's not what they thought. 
But adversity is going to come our way. Because again, Scripture doesn't say if. It says when you meet various trials. You can count on it. Okay? They're going to come your way. It's a promise you can take to the bank. You're going to have trials. But then I know that we do everything in our life to try to avoid these trials. But they're inevitable. If you don't have any problems in your life, this is what you should do. Check your pulse. Because maybe you're dead. That's maybe why you don't have any problems. But I need you to know this. As your pastor, I want you to know this. You're either in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're about to go into a trial. Okay, that, that's true for all of us. Everyone. I mean like everyone. You're either you're in one of those three situations. In, coming out, or about to go into a trial. William Shakespeare said this. He said, quote, Troubles seldom come as single century men. They usually come in battalions. Isn't that true? It's not like you just have one problem at a time. No, they start, bah, 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 bah. it's rapid fire they hit you. That's how they come. You know, Jesus said that exactly that's the way it's going to be. He told his disciple once, he says, in this world, there will be tribulation. Nobody's immune from difficulties. But there is a very common misconception, very popular in certain circles of Christianity, that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're, gonna, you're not going to encounter any more trials. I'm like, where's that in the Bible? I've read this book cover to cover, front to back, many, many times. That's not what I see in the pages of the Bible. In fact, that's the opposite of what I see. That's not true. But God uses trials in our life to make us more like Jesus. The goal is to conform us into the image of Jesus. And sometimes we just don't understand what's happening. There's suffering, there's pain, there's tragedy, there's trials. But no, that's, that does not mean God's not working. If you have a God that is great enough that you can be angry at Him for not stopping your trial, well, that means that you have a God that, has, that is great enough to have a different perspective than we do. John Piper said this, he said, quote, God ordains suffering because through all other reasons it displays to the world the supremacy of His own worth above all treasures. Here's the second thing we need to know about life, about problems. Number two, Problems are unpredictable. Because again, James says, when you meet. Literally, when they come upon you unexpectedly. Trials aren't planned. It's not like, oh yeah, trial? Tuesday doesn't work for me. How about Thursday at lunch? That, I could fit into my schedule there. No, it doesn't work like that. Trials are painful, but they're meant for our good. You know, sometimes you go to the doctor. Doctor sends a nurse in with a big needle, big syringe and even bigger needle. There's some kind of fluid in there. What's in that syringe is meant for our good. And the nurse says, hey, where do you want this? I said, you can stick in that wall. Stick in the light socket. That'll be a lot of fun. Stick in your own arm. I don't care. Don't stick it in me. But again, the doctor prescribed that for my good. And then we cannot anticipate trials. If we can anticipate trials, we would devise a strategy to miss them altogether, Right? But trials are unplanned, they're unpredictable. They're going to happen when we least expect them. And they're by nature unpredictable, and they're usually unavoidable. But here's the third thing we need to know about life. Problems are purposeful. Because we are made by God on purpose and for a purpose. And trials are meant to shape us into the image of Christ. Look what James says just later in James chapter 1, verse 3. He says, For you know... That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
these problems, these trials we go through, they have a purpose and it's designed by God. And remember, he has a perspective that is so much grander than ours. And trials or or problems, they really test our faith. And the testing of our faith, like James said, produces steadfastness. James uses this word testing, okay? And this testing is testing like silver and gold. Peter uses very similar language when he wrote his book. Reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Here's that word various again. So that the testing, excuse me, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a purpose in our, in our trials. Then later, Peter goes on and says this in 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that, that when it comes upon you to test you as something strange has happened to you. You see, God uses the furnace of the trial to burn off those parts of your character that aren't like Jesus. Tim Keller said this. He said, quote, Life-giving faith grows beautiful and pure in the same place that gold grows beautiful and pure in the furnace. So God uses that furnace of trials to transform us into the very image of Jesus. Maybe you're not jiving with the the, the illustration of a furnace. Let me give you another one. And that's one of a sculptor. I mean, think about it. Nothing worthwhile happens without endurance and energy. When a stone stone sculptor, he takes his chisel and his hammer, hammer and he's got his block of of marble, do you think when the first time he strikes it, the first blow, everything just falls off and you have a beautiful sculptor? No. He has to hit it and hit it and keep hitting and chisel and chisel, sometimes hitting the hammer harder and harder to get off the chunks that are a little more stubborn, a little lighter to get the other ones. And that's the way life is. Nothing really worthwhile comes that's easy. We have to keep hitting, keep going after it. And little by little, we begin begin to be changed into the image that God would have us. You know, I once heard a story about a sculptor. He's creating a sculptor of a man. And there was a bystander that said, Hey, how do you take a chunk of marble and turn it into something that looks like a man? And the sculptor said, well, I just look at the marble and everything that doesn't look like a man, I just remove it. That's what God's doing with our life. God, and God's using the trials, that's the chisel, to chip away at our character and make us more into the image of His Son, Jesus. Keep reading, pick it up, Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're in jail singing songs, that's awesome. And the prisoners were listening too. Hear that? The prisoners are hearing what's going on. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken and immediately the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, he saw that the prison doors were open and he drew his sword. He was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. 
And when they spoke a word of the Lord to him, and all who were in his house, he took them that same hour to, at night and washed their wounds, and he, and, and he was baptized at once, he and his, all of his family. And then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced, although he, and along with his entire house, he and had believed in God. Here's my second point for us today. Point number two. God uses our personal suffering to bring about greater ends. I mean, think about it. We often have such a limited view on suffering. We can only see what we're experiencing. This is how we see our view. We don't see everything that's going on around, do we? Because often we think our suffering is only for us. I mean, think about this. I mean, this is Acts chapter 16 here. Without the redirection of the Holy Spirit, there never would have been the encounter with the little slave girl. If Paul and Silas didn't encounter the slave girl, she never would have been freed. If that little girl was never been freed, then Paul and Silas never would have been beat and thrown into prison. And without Paul and Silas thrown into prison, the Philippian jailer wouldn't have never been saved. So God uses suffering to bring about a greater ends. And sometimes that greater ends, that we're suffering and someone we love come to faith in Jesus Christ. Or we're suffering and some total stranger comes to faith in Jesus Christ. We're suffering and our neighbor gets saved. Amen. So we need to know that there's purpose in our pain. No pain is ever wasted. If you have pain in your life right now, God, no, just know God's not wasting that pain. We have to remember and cling to this truth that all of the problems and all the trials in our life, there is a purpose. And again, if you're amped to take notes, maybe write this down. When God is big, problems are small. But when God is small, problems are big. You know, think about it. Through the eyes of Paul and Silas, the beatings, imprisonment, big or small? It's small. That's small. But the gospel, God at work, that was huge, right? So here's a question I have for you. How do you see your problems? How do you see your suffering? How do you see your trials? How do you see them? Or maybe a better question is, how do you see God? Is he a big God? Is he a sovereign God overall? Is he control over everything that's happening, not only in the universe, but in your life and your body too? So you have to ask, how is he going to use what you're going through to glorify him and his kingdom? Hey, does anybody like it when a story ends well? I just love it when a story ends well. Well, this is, this is one of those stories. The jailer asks this question. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? As a pastor, I love it when someone softballs that one. Hey, how do I get saved? Bang, home run, there we go. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And you and your whole household, isn't that great? It's not about us. It's all about the God who came for us. We just need to know that Everyone who professes Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what it takes to get into heaven. You have to profess Jesus Christ as Lord, meaning boss. He's in charge, not me. You are God. I am not. He's our Lord and Savior. See, my faith, my wife's faith, it doesn't get our kids to heaven. It doesn't hurt either. Let me say that. I want to talk to the dads for a minute. This is a hard word to the dads, the men in the room. Maybe you're not a dad yet, but you will be in the future. Pay attention. That's you. 
Dads, your faith is absolutely critical for the faith of your children. Here's some statistics show. Here, me give you some statistics. When a child is first to come to attend church in the family, 3% of the time the family follows. When a mom is first to attend church, 17% of the time the family follows. But when a dad is the first to attend church, 93% of the time the rest of the family follows. Research shows that when you reach a child with the gospel first, there's a 34% chance that the rest of the family will get saved. Hey, where do we have vacation Bible school? One out of three families are about to get saved. Amen? That's good statistics. I like that. But if you reach the mom first, 42% of the time, the rest of the family will follow. But if you reach the dad first, 93% of the time, the rest of the family follows. Dads, you are the spiritual rudder of the family. As you go, so the rest of the family goes. So if you want your kids to live a faith-filled life, a life for Jesus, then you be the one to lead your family and do this. Because if you do, odds are the family will follow. Keep reading, verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to him, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned. Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and they apologized to them. Hey, I'm sorry we beat you. Threw you in prison. Sorry about that. Well, they apologized and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And they went in the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Here's my third and final point for us this morning. Point number three. Your witness matters. Use it wisely. Here's something I just wonder about. This is, you're getting a glimpse into the mind of Pastor John. Okay, I think about what happened to the other guys in jail? Paul and Silas aren't the only guys in jail. There's other people in jail. What happened to them? Luke doesn't tell us. You know, though he doesn't tell us, I'm willing to bet that some of them got saved too. Because think about it. Paul and Silas, they, they could have walked right out of prison, but they didn't, right? They, they, and so those people in prison, they would have heard the doors crash open. They heard the, the chains fall off Paul and Silas. They also heard the, the jailer ask that question, what must I do to be saved? And they also heard the answer, right? And the answer was, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And then when the, they also heard, heard about the city officials and everything that happened. And, and it's clearly an example of police, police brutality. I mean, because think about it. Paul and his friends, they were wrongfully put in prison, wrongfully beaten for crimes they didn't commit. And so they've got a strong case. So everybody's watching. What is Paul and Silas going to do? You know, what, you know what Paul did? He left a strong witness, didn't he? He left a strong witness, not only of his own integrity, but a witness for the power of the gospel. Because after all, there is a church of Philippi that's in its infancies. There's a few believers that's about to get going. Paul could have made a huge scene. You beat me. You, 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 you put through us in prison. We have, we have a case. I'm going to sue. That's what Paul could have done. 
But instead, he used the beatings, he used the jailings to further the gospel. He used his witness. It was important. So here's what I see in Acts chapter 16. I see the Lord working in some really difficult situation to bring saving faith in people's lives. If we went all the way to the beginning of Acts chapter 16, we see Timothy, he comes to faith in Christ, and then him and Paul doing some pretty hard things so that Timothy will be a better witness for the gospel. And then we meet Lydia, and there's this conversion, a little quiet place of prayer, and then there's this little girl who's demon-possessed, and she's freed. And then there's this jailer's conversion. It's a dramatic scene because one minute he's about to take a sword. He's about to kill himself. But a moment later, he's calling on Jesus to save him. And he and his whole family get saved. And you know what? Use the witness of these believers to make it happen. That's what God did. God using the suffering and the trials of Paul and Silas and the others so the people get saved. And you know what? People are watching us. There's so many people live right here in our own backyards. So many people we shop with at the grocery store. They know what we, they know we're going through. Here's something. Be open. Be honest. Let them know. And let them know this Jesus Christ is holding you up. They're just waiting. They're just watching, ready to get saved. And sometimes God uses pain or trials in our lives to make it happen in someone else's. Years ago, I think it's getting close to about nine years now, we had some very close, dear, personal friends of ours. She was pregnant, and days before her delivery date happened, there's tragedy, and inside a womb, a baby died. It was horrible. One of the worst situations I've ever had to go through for, with, as a pastor. And then it was months and months later, the, the, that mom and then some other moms that have lost children, they had a celebration of life kind of c- ceremony. And then they, they leave the church and they had these white balloons and, and they let the balloons go. It's, it's like symboling that those babies going to be with Jesus. At the same time, there was a seven-year-old McKenna Burns watching and said, Mom, why are those ladies letting those balloons go? And my, my wife explained to my daughter what was going on in that situation. And that night... I had the pleasure of setting my daughter on the counter, a little seven-year-old McKenna, and sharing the gospel with her. And Kenna came to faith in Jesus Christ because of the pain of that mom and what she lost. God uses our pain as a witness to a lost world so that they can be saved. The question the, the Philippian jailer asks is, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. My question is, do you believe Do you believe? Because the gospel starts that God is sovereign and God is holy, but you and I, we are sinners. Every single one of us. We've done the things we shouldn't do. We didn't do the things we should do, and that's called sin. And our sin, it separates us from God. That literally we're all going to hell. The whole world is going to hell, but God didn't want that. That's why Jesus Christ came to the earth. The Christmas story is really a rescue story where God himself comes on a rescue mission to live the life that we're incapable of living and then going to a cross and dying, that he gave his life and the very wrath of God was poured on his only begotten son. Why? Not because he's a sinner, because I'm a sinner, because you're a sinner. Jesus died, buried in a tomb, and three days later came back from the grave to prove that everything he said was true, That if we profess Jesus as Savior and Lord, we will be saved. And it's not about us doing anything. It's been done. 
Salvation is not something you achieve. It's something you receive by calling out to Jesus. The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you never called on Christ to save you, I would beg you right now as you sit there, maybe somebody's at home watching this. You can do it on your couch. You can do it anywhere. Call out to Jesus. And for most of us, it's a prayer. We say something along the lines of, Dear God, I'm a sinner. My sin, I'm, I'm wicked. And Lord, I'm separated from you. But yet, even though I'm a sinner, you came. You saw me. You saw me in my unrighteousness and sinful nature. Lord, you came and you died. Not for what you've done, but what I've done. I want to place my faith in you and you alone. Save me of my sins. Thank you for paying the price for what I have done. I give my life to you. And I pray this in the holy, precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.